Stones, everybody. I am Sean Graham Scott. Physically distancing, as always. Hello, Scott. Hey, Sean. How uh, how's it going? It's going pretty good. Going it's, pretty good, eh? Yeah. It's it's an interesting time of year as we're now into August. It was a long weekend here in Ontario and for most of the country. Uh, not for me, as I work over on the Quebec side and there's not a provincial holiday. But Scott, one of the things I really like about August is that, and this happened last night, for the first time in at least six weeks, I slept under the covers the whole night. Wow. Yeah. With the window open. Yeah, because it finally got down to uh, 14 degrees or something. It was the low overnight, and there was that slight chill in my apartment with the windows open. It was delightful. Yeah, it was a beauty, uh, beauty night for sure. I uh, spent the day sitting with my screen door open, you know, listening to the rain. Yes. Oh, nothing I like more than that. Smelling the <laughs> the rain on the pavement, just, uh Yeah. So, uh, yeah, the, the remnants of the hurricane, which was a tropical depression, and now, what is it called when it's like, that's, what's below the depression? That's not what it was. It was just rain. Oh. It was another system. Oh, sorry. I thought the forecast said that the tropical storm, we were getting the outer banks of what was left of the storm uh not yesterday okay anyway uh we hope everyone is doing well who is in line of the storm uh, down there in the carolinas uh and the sort of i don't know what it's called around maryland too once it uh once it reaches you know it's not a tropical storm anymore uh they're called extra tropical depressions uh-huh. okay well we hope everyone's doing well there are some scary photos of some of the damage and flooding that uh, was taking place so we hope everyone is well with all of that uh, so let's get into this week's episode scott this is an episode that as we record our intro here we this is wednesday we recorded it on sunday and it was a roundtable discussion we wanted to get back into the conversation about diversity in curling that has been going on not just on this show but really across the curling world for a while now and we wanted to reach out continue this conversation so i'm very excited to run the conversation we had with andrew paris who lives out in the east coast you might know him on twitter as the curling dad he has been involved in nova scotia curling on the board he's very heavily involved uh, with his kids curling and he really is someone who has a great level of experience in marketing the sport, trying to help grow the sport within the Nova Scotia community and and is very active out there on the East Coast. So I was very excited to have him. And then we also had the pleasure of talking with Carrie Galusha, who of course has been to the Scotties, we think we decided 16 times. Uh, (laughs) I I should have looked it up, but it's it's mid-teens at worst. Uh, that she's been to the Scotty. He's also been to numerous other national events, has a medal from the National Mixed, and Carrie's father, Fred, of residential school survivor, if you've never read the Devon Rowe article from CBC, member of the Gwich'in First Nation. Really uh, interesting to get her perspective as well, Scott. 
Yeah, I thought uh, both of them were really great, had a lot of good things, good conversation starters to say. And uh, Sean, you mentioned this conversation has been going on in the curling community for a little while now. It's, it's also going on in the world at large. And it's a conversation that's not always comfortable for people who look like you and I, but it's a conversation that we think is really important. And, you know, we, what small forum we have, we think it's important that it be used in a positive way to advance the conversation, to get people thinking about it across the world and in the smaller curling world. Because like you say all the time, Sean, curling clubs don't look like the Canada that you and I see every day and we want to know why and we want to work towards changing that absolutely very well said Scott let's get into this one again we recorded it earlier this week so without any further ado here's a conversation with Andrew Paris and Carrie Galusha so let's get into this you know we, we had a discussion a few weeks ago about uh, diversity in the sport we wanted to, to revisit it and I want to start with the to see if we have the same starting point as we did with the the last group, and uh, we'll start Andrew and, and Carrie. I want to get your thoughts on this. Andrew, we'll start with you. My feeling is that when I turn on a national championship in this country, regardless of whether it's the Scotties, the Briar, or even the mixed doubles, that what I see on the ice doesn't reflect the country that I live in. Like when I go out and walk around Ottawa. I don't see the same thing as when I turn on the Scotties or the Briar. It's just the, the diversity in the country is not reflected in the sport. I want to know if you think that, that if that's off or not. And, and I think that's sort of the starting point that I'm coming at it with. So, Andrew, Andrew, what do you think? It's It definitely doesn't reflect the diversity of Canada. It's getting there, slowly but surely. Like If you look at the junior ranks where I, I was mainly focused when I was technical director with Nova Scotia Curling, there's a handful of up-and-coming teams with that feature people of color, but at the national level, when you turn on, when you turn on the skies or the bright, it's definitely not quite there yet, or not to the point where we would ideally like, so to speak. Hmm. Okay, uh, and Carrie, what about you and your experience uh, in the north? Yeah. I agree. Um, it's funny you mentioned the Briar and Scotties because um, actually a lot of people don't know that our family is Indigenous and mm-hmm. that Jamie, Kevin, and I are part of the um, Gwich'in Tribal Council from up in the Beaufort Delta. A lot of people don't know that because we don't look Aboriginal. And actually I was talking um, with my teammates, Sarah Colton last night, she was telling me that her old teammates from the Yukon, Chelsea Duncan, Jenna Duncan, Patty Wallingham, they're also indigenous. So, you know, there are a few of us at the Scotties and Briar, but it's not talked about. It only really came out when my brother went to go to the Olympics and then um, CBC did some stories on it. So um, there might be a bit of diversity at the Scotties and Briar, but not, it's, it's not really made aware of. But I mean, in terms of curling in general, I think we're pretty inclusive. Like we have wheelchair curling, hearing impaired curling, um, you know, in terms of that. But in terms of race and diversity, no, <laughs> I agree. There isn't. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I agree. The, the only time that I, your family's background has been talked about, you're right, that was that CBC story when Kevin went to the Olympics. Yeah. And is that something that is a conscious choice on your family's part? Or is it something that people just don't ask about, do you think? I just think people aren't aware of it and they don't ask. 
Devin Hero from CBC, he was very interested in our family when we won and um, he did a lot of work on it and on our family and Kevin and my dad and um, from Devin's article, it kind of, a few more came out after that. So, but I mean, just, I just think it's awareness. Right. And, and I mean, it's interesting that you say with uh, Chelsea Duncan uh, and some of the other yeah. players from the North, I mean, the, the North has a, a pretty substantial indigenous community proportionally to the rest of the country. Right? If you look at the percentages, I, I believe it's a higher percentage than most other parts of the country. And Andrew, where you are, uh, please correct me if I'm wrong, but Halifax has a more sizable uh, black community than some other parts of the country as well. Do you think it's it's like how much of it is certainly just the demographics of how many people are in the, the communities, do you think, Andrew? It's a bit of the demographics. I also think, and maybe we'll touch on this a little bit later, it's also intentionally advertising slash marketing to different groups, which is something that I find at least in the Maritimes, some, not all clubs, because there's a couple of clubs that are really good at it, but most clubs, they'll typically do your open house sort of thing. And whatever that brings in, it brings in. So sort of going out to the different communities, like for example, in Halifax, we have some of the largest, largest, black communities in the country in in cherry brook north preston east preston for example mm -hmm. but i i know that like, there's never been any advertising that's sort of being geared towards them and there, there's a couple of reasons as to why but there's definitely an opportunity there and within our indigenous communities we have 13 first nations in nova scotia first nation community excuse me in nova scotia and I know Nova Scotia Curling, when I was there, we just started working with them to try to bring curling to those communities in a, in a variety of different ways. But we just sort of scratched the surface there before, before I left. Right. And I think Andrew brings up a good point about reaching out to different communities. And, and I'm curious to know how it works, uh, Carrie, for you in the North. What is the marketing of the sport to try to get people into the club? <laughs> well, <laughs> I know. I mean, every club struggles. We're no different up here. Um, I mean, we try to start with juniors and rocks and rings. I know that comes up a lot with all the clubs um, and people you guys have talked to, but it's really tough. Um, I just think, in my experience, I think, I don't know if this has come up in any of your discussions yet, but clubs are very clicky. Like, it's, it's, it's tough and if you don't really start with the kids and getting them in and then their parents in i i don't really know how you do it and i mean our club is very volunteer based and i mean i would love to be more involved in trying to help get more people in our club but it's very time consuming and i don't have a lot of time and so it's it's like you have to find the right people that can put all the effort in and get new people into the club i, I don't know mm -hmm. Yeah, it's sort of one of these these catch 22s, right? That you want more people in the club, but at some point there's a capacity to the club and like like certainly where where Scott and I play at the Ottawa Curling Club, most leagues are full, so there's not necessarily the incentive to go find new members, but then oh my god, mm -hmm. now we're out of members, but we have we don't have a system in place yes. to get new members. It's it's you know, it it has to be this continuing thing that you're you're always trying to recruit new people. Yeah. But it's tough. Like some people just don't want 
too. Either, like, it's, I don't know, I, it, it's just such a tough question how you fix these problems. And I think it, it should come from the very top. Like, I think it needs to go to the top and work its way down. But that's just my opinion. Right. Um, well, I, I'm curious, Andrew, how did you get into the sport? Uh, you know, you, you mentioned recruitment of juniors and stuff. What, what is your path into curling? So my grandfather really liked curling. And there's pictures of me, you know, two or three years old, sliding can pots and pans across the floor, <laughs> pretending like I know what I'm doing. But um, I couldn't get into curling quick enough. I remember at the club where I grew up in, in PEI, they started curling, I think it was eight or nine. And that's when I started curling and just sort of went from there. But it wasn't any sort of marketing towards me. It was just I watched every Scotties and Briar from the late 80s onward and couldn't get on the ice quick enough. And, and then that is is you brought your kids into it too right yeah so i moved away from pgi in 2003 to go to school so i stopped curling for a few years but my stepdaughter watched curling i think 2006 ones yeah those were the ones in torino and mm -hmm. she said no dad i'd like to try curling so of course big smile beams across my face <laughs> we go down to the curling club later that fall and i mentioned to the um, junior director at the time you know, I know a little bit about curling. You know, I can definitely help out. And of course, just like any other parent who would ever approach you with that, they can't get you on the ice quick enough. <laughs> and then from there, you just take a coaching course here and a coaching course there. And it just sort of all took off from there. And and Carrie, I think your, your family story is pretty well established. But what was curling like for you growing up as, as a kid going to the club? Yeah. Um, well, we lived up in Anubik for a few years and my dad... Um, did the ice up there. It was actually natural ice. I've curled on natural ice quite a bit, um, which is kind of cool. But um, Jamie and Kevin were more into curling than I was at first, Kevin especially. And then when we moved to Yellowknife, uh, my parents ran the junior program. So I wasn't interested in curling, but they basically forced me to go <laughs> after school and curl. So I was forced into it. And then, I mean, I loved it. But it was it was definitely... The five of us were at the club all the time. It was hard not to get into it because we were always all there. And um, it, it just, it grew. And my brothers did other sports. They played hockey and um, baseball. and But then curling just basically took over the, the Cooey family's <laughs> lives. <laughs> and I have seen, it, it's interesting you say you're sort of forced into it. Because yeah. in, in, in interviews, both of your brothers and your dad have said that out of the family, you're the best shot maker. <laughs> Yeah, out of they everyone always, they always say that <laughs> i don't know if they mean it but they do say that <laughs> so uh so you know so you you were both in, involved in the sport early um andrew I'm, I'm curious to know have you ever met any resistance uh at any of the clubs you know carrie mentioned that clubs can be pretty clicky and, and certainly that is the case uh in my experience as well that clubs you know people tend to gravitate to the people they know at a club and aren't necessarily forthcoming and reaching out to new people. What was your, or what has your experience been like traveling between clubs? Have you ever met any sort of resistance? So I've never made, I've only met resistance twice, like in very specific instances where the N word was used 
towards me at the Crown Club. But 99.9% of the time, there's no resistance. And I think that's just one of the things that I want to really bring up. Like, we're not having this conversation because we think all curling clubs and all curlers are racist. It's that we want to bring more diversity to the club. Like, ever since we started having these conversations, that's the big thing that gets brought up to me. It's, oh, well, we'll welcome anybody into a club. We'll welcome anybody into a club. And you certainly will, but the idea of a black person walking into a curling club, even myself, who's been in, in and out of every curling club in this province, I still get the odd look when I walk into a club. It's not resistance per se, but it's more of a, what are you doing here until they sort of realize who you are? So for somebody, for a person of color, who doesn't have that background, the idea of walking into a curl club, it's intimidating. That's really the message that I've been trying to get out over the last month or two since we started having these conversations. So the obviously the the instance where you know people are using the N word, that is just that obviously unacceptable. But I, I'm also curious to know those sort of passive Res that passive resistance that you talk about, sort of those glances. Uh, you know, when we we did this a, f a couple of weeks ago, um, the, our, our guest talked about how somebody said to them, like, "Who do they think they are?" Right, like that type of language. I, I, that that strikes me as being very, like, it, it doesn't seem as openly antagonistic, but it seems extremely antagonistic. Like, especially for you with your kids around. You know, how do you approach those sorts of situations when they're part of the sport now as well? And, and how do you teach them to try to address that type of passive resistance that you've experienced? So I, the type of resistance that I sort of experience is, oh, you curl? Or when working with like an open house or a clinic, for example, the the questions that you get asked and you have to explain it back on yes, you know, like I've curled for about 20 years now and, you know, I'm a comp dev trained coach, that sort of thing. Like just having to break down that barrier first of basically having to explain my credentials where I've seen other non-people of color walk right into some of the clinics I put on or some of the open houses I put on. Nobody really questions you know, their background or their teaching ability. With mm -hmm. my kids, it's it's tricky. So, like, just to give you a bit of background, my stepdaughter, she's white. So there's no real issue there, per se. My son, however, he's, he's black. And he hasn't really, he's 12. He hasn't fully experienced any sort of overt racism, per se. So trying to get him to walk, I don't want to say walk a fine line, but try to explain to them, you know, like, you're no different than everybody else. Just go out there, have fun, throw your shots. You know, that sort of thing. But he does get the side eye every now and then, and we've talked about it a couple of times, you know, just go out there and play your game. You know, all, you, all you can really focus on is making your two shots, and then move on to the next thing. But as he's starting to get older now, we're having a bit more of those conversations. But 
Uh, and Carrie, what about you and your experience? Have you had any instances of similar resistance uh, in your career? You know what? I was sitting here yesterday trying to think about that, and I honestly don't think I have. And um, that I could think of off the top of my head, and I kind of wish I had talked to my father about it to see what his experiences were, because I'm sure he has. Um, but he's never told me about it, but I'm sure there, I, I mean, I was shocked. I listened to your last uh, broadcast with Portia and Aria and I, I was shocked with some of the stories they had to tell and sounded like they had a lot more. And then same with Andrew. Like I, I, I mean, I think I'm a little bit ignorant when it comes to that because I don't see, I've never seen that. And um, shocking to me to know that fellow curlers would actually do that right but that's the issue in Canada I mean there's issues down in America but Canada has its own issues with Indigenous peoples and it's a huge huge problem and people just aren't aware of it and even me living up in the north like I see it every day but it's just part of my life and um I don't know. In terms of the club setting, though, it's it's just so tricky how you get more people and more diversity into the clubs. Like, that's the million dollar question. Do you think there's anything within the structure of the sport uh, at any level, at the club level or, or the competitive national level, that Indigenous people might not like attach themselves to, or that is is similar to the the passive resistance that Andrew was talking about a little bit. That side eye, that indigenous people might be reluctant to participate in that within the sport because of that. I think so. I really, as much as you think curling clubs and are welcoming because people think curling is just. I, th I think people think curling is a welcoming sport, but then really, I don't know if it actually is, to be mm -hmm. honest. So um, in a club setting, it's very intimidating. Um, I've seen new people come into our club and they don't stay all the time. Most of them don't. So mm -hmm. obviously that's an issue. Um, and actually the club I curl out of, the Knife Curling Club, we used to have a lot of indigenous peoples curl in our club and the numbers have declined. I really thought about this last week and we used to have a Denny Métis field. Um, a lot of us used to go down to Saskatoon and curl in the national Aboriginal championships. Um, we don't really, I, I had to Google to see if those were even still on. Um, no. I didn't know. And we, yeah, we used to have a lot of indigenous peoples curl out of our club. And now I can only count a handful of people that are actually still curling and involved in our club, which is not good, but I actually had to think about that because it's something I didn't really notice until you asked me to have this chat with you. <laughs> so that's a problem in itself right there, right? So why, why are the numbers declining? How do we get more indigenous peoples into our club? And I mean, I know the Anuva Curling Club where I used to live, they've done a really good job and with the junior program, it's skyrocketed up there. They've, they've uh, done a fabulous job. So I've been talking to, um, Nick Saturnino, who is up there, and I'm hoping to have some meetings with him to see what they do, and hopefully implement it into our club this coming season if we have a season. Right, if there, yeah, if there's a season, yeah. right? that's sort of the the big the big sort of thing that's looming over all of these discussions of will clubs even be open? Will there be uh, will there be a yeah. season? 
Um, so, so let's get into the the notion of junior curling and addressing this at the, at the junior level, because uh, Andrew, of course, you've been involved in junior curling quite extensively too. Uh, what what do you think is the best approach to bring in young people, diverse young people, into the sport? Because one of the things that I I think is an opportunity right now for clubs is if they can open, and obviously that that's probably going to be a regional thing as, as we move forward. If they can open, maybe the model of you sign up in September for, and you commit to six or seven months with the same three teammates and you show up every Tuesday night at the same time to play. Maybe that model needs to go away and you sign up for shorter periods of times, or there's availability for, doubles or even singles, triples, whatever it is, like maybe just the business model needs to change. And that could make it more appealing to a broader base of people is, is one thought I've had. But Andrew, what, what do you think would make the sport more appealing to a more diverse group of young people? I think the first thing you do, and Carrie brought this up in her last answer, is talk to leaders in, in the various communities. Like, that doesn't cost ten thousand dollars. Doesn't cost a thousand dollars. Just have those conversations, and if you struggle to find, well, who are those leaders? Um, go to your local um sport organization. So, like in Nova Scotia, for example, would be Sport Nova Scotia, and I guarantee you, those who work in those offices are more than willing to have those conversations. At least do introductions, whether it's in person or by email, as to who those leaders are. The second thing is that the traditional sign up for six months thing, it doesn't really work with introducing brand new people into the sport. For example, Hockey Nova Scotia had, has a program targeted specifically towards black Nova Scotians where they give, they give them the equipment, you pay registration fee. I want to say it's $50, $75. It's nothing extreme. And they have a specific ice time to help introduce them into the sport. And then after two years, you're no longer eligible for that program. You're, if you're still interested in hockey, you then transition to your local minor hockey association. Like, I, I think something like that in curling could work if you had the right people to take up the leadership part of it as well. And then the other thing that drives me crazy because a lot of people don't understand this is all of the marketing material that most clubs have it's a bunch of white people or a bunch of older white people curling and like we, we need to change this up a little bit like that doesn't that doesn't intrigue intrigue young white people let alone young <laughs> people of color and that's not to say that we shouldn't focus at all on seniors and curling, but this is another step towards the American music. You know, there, are, there are tons of people of color, not tons, but there's many people of color who we have photos of. You know, add, just add into the market. Don't completely change it, for, for example, but you can add in the odd picture to show that it's not just white people who curl. But it's just a matter of thinking inside the box and understanding that this is a long-term project. So one of the things that really hampers any sort of initiative is the fact that when you're on a board at Curling Club, 
you're usually on there for a maximum of two years and then another group comes into play and they have their own ideas and blah, 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 blah. My big thing that I've told clubs over and over again is this is going to take more than two years to solve. This is a long, this is a five to 10 year project. So when you're thinking long-term, you don't need to completely revamp everything that you're doing, but diversifying your club is a small piece of, should be a small piece of your long-term plan. Yeah, th- I remember, Scott, do you remember what commercial it was? It's an old guy sitting in the rink and young people come in and it's he not. gets mad at them. What is that commercial? It's a Curl Saskatchewan commercial that oh, uh, yes. they aired during the, the playdowns last year. I actually yeah. wrote it here as my note. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's an old white guy who gets annoyed by young white people coming into the club. And then he teaches them how to play and then they all have a drink together and everything is great. Um, <laughs> like it's 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 really it's a hilarious commercial. But you're right, like the 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 marketing of that is like it 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 I don't know if it's indirectly saying or directly saying this is who belongs uh, by showing only of this group of people uh, and it, it's not reaching out to others. Uh, but I, I think one of the issues potentially is, is not just reaching out to diverse groups is that clubs don't really reach out at all. And it it's part of just the, the insularity of the sport that we've touched on a little bit that clubs tend to get members by word of mouth. So people bring their families, people bring their friends. And so you get a lot of like-minded people as a result. And clubs just aren't great at reaching out into the community at all. I don't think uh, in, in trying to find new members, Carrie, you're shaking your head. Do you agree I with agree. me? I 100% agree. It, clubs mm-hmm. just seem really bad at that. I think everyone thinks they're trying, but I don't think they're trying hard enough. Um, and like we've said, it's all about community outreach and youth engagement. Yeah. That's really where it's at. And if you don't do that, then you're not, nothing that will ever change. Right. Yeah, I have, I have a little question. Was curling taught in school for any of you? I think in PE class, we went and did it once, but it seems like an opportunity. Every kid's supposed to go to school. Let's teach them about curling there. And Rocks and Rings is starting young. But maybe once you get into high school, you transition into uh, some sort of on-ice program. Our schools up here have done that a little bit, but not. Mm-hmm. it hasn't been consistent. It mainly depends on the teacher, teachers. Oh. And we've had some teachers really interested in it, but um, it, it hasn't taken off by any means. But we have had hmm. um, classes come in and curl, but it hasn't been a program in the school. Okay. Um, for me, um, we did curl a little bit in high school, but by that point, I was already quite involved in the sport. Right. So I was—I I can remember helping the gym teacher through a couple of things. I know here in Nova Scotia, those clubs who really put effort and team up with Rocks and Rings, they've seen success, but that's in like very specific pockets around around the province right and uh i will say too for anybody who's watching we we are planning on talking to the creator of rocks and rings uh this week um so that'll be a a future episode uh, of the show to talk about what rocks and rings is doing so we're looking forward to talking with him uh about that program in in a little more divert or a little more uh, deep way to get a sense of where that program's coming from 
Um, I do want to address an issue. We talked about it with Aria and Portia and Jason a few weeks ago. And one of the concerns uh, that, that I think some people have is not just reaching out, but reaching out in a meaningful way. Uh, because one of the, the issues that could potentially come up is tokenism. And I always cite the example of playing at the Rideau Curling Club and, and mentioning the lack of diversity. And people would always say to me, well, what about Jim? And Jim was the one black player. Uh, in the club, right? And they'd be like, well, we're diverse. Jim is here. And I always thought that that was not really the, the best response to that. Uh, you know, it felt kind of like like this sort of token, uh, the, basically just tokenism. So, uh, Andrew, in your experience, you know, what makes a meaningful engagement with people, with, with communities to try them to, bri to try them, bring them in, as opposed to doing it just to say that we've done it? Like, what makes it actually meaningful? So there's two pieces to my response. The first one is that you're going to feel a level of awkwardness, a level of apprehension when starting to have these conversations. I feel for you, I legitimately do. However, you need to understand that that level of uncomfortableness, that level of awkwardness that you feel right now having this conversation is a level of awkwardness I feel every single day. Mm -hmm. So first off, let's sort of push get that out of the way the second thing is you have just start with conversation you don't need a pretty marketing material bound and glossy just talk to community and this doesn't just apply to um diverse this applies to people to get members in general get out into the community don't rely on your members to bring a friend into the curling club. Get out there and talk about it. If there's a parade, like this weekend is Nail Day weekend in Halifax. And normally, you know, with if COVID wasn't happening, there'd be a parade. Why can't your club put a boat in the parade, for example? Like that, that sort of thing. It doesn't take a whole lot of effort, but at the same time, it does take effort. You need the open house model, and this is just my thoughts in general, it doesn't work anymore. You really need to put effort into your market. So it's just a matter of having those conversations. And mm. I beg of you, if nothing else, if you forget my name, if you forget everything about me, just remember there's going to be awkwardness. And I beg of you just to please push through it. And then once you push through and go from there, you'll be surprised what you'll see on the other side of that. Yeah, I, I agree. Like being uncomfortable, it it's okay, right? Like it's almost like get comfortable being uncomfortable because these discussions are just by nature uncomfortable and they have to be. Um, yeah. And and I'm reminded too, one of the things that Ari and Portia said to us is um, don't just invite us to the dance, like actually dance with us, mm. right? Like don't like it's, you know, just actually meaningfully engage with people. Sorry, Carrie, I think I cut you off. No, I, I, I mean, I, Andrew said it perfectly, 100% agree with everything you just said, but it is, it's uncomfortable and um no one wants to talk about it and everyone's scared to offend somebody and no one, I mean, a really good example for me the, lately is um, we just celebrated Indigenous, uh, Indigenous Peoples Day and 
I was, I talked to Jerry Gertz about this a few weeks ago. I was highly disappointed that not many curling teams on social media who curling teams are very big on social media. They never acknowledge that day. And that's hmm. a day in Canada that we celebrate, not just the North. And I think it's because people are scared to say anything. They're uncomfortable with it. They don't want to post anything that they're not aware of. And for me, I had a really good friend and I have a good friend in Ontario that I talked to him about residential schools and he had no idea what they were. And he's a, a really smart guy, a real, one of the smartest guys I know. And he had no, I thought he was kidding when he told me he didn't know what residential schools were. And that's me almost being ignorant, thinking that everyone in Canada knows about this history. And, mm -hmm. um, but people out East don't. And for that day, for me, that's a big deal. Um, and it just, I don't know, it resonates with me. And that if people aren't ready to be, the people aren't ready to be uncomfortable and talk about right. diversity. Yeah. And, yeah, and so so I I'm a historian by training, like that's my profession as is, is a historian, and and one of the things that I noticed too yesterday was Emancipation Day, uh, across the the Commonwealth, and yeah, I saw very little on the curling Twitter side of it about about the day, but on my history my my history Twitter, um, in my role, one of the things that I do is I work with the National Program of Historical Commemoration, and on Friday it was announced four new historical designations related to black history in Canada, one of which was the enslavement of Africans in uh, pre-Confederation Canada. And for about 10 minutes yesterday morning, uh, that was trending, but it was trending from people who were claiming that either it was a lie, that we just made it up, which is absurd, or people saying that it was offensive to discuss the enslavement of Africans in pre-Confederation Canada. And that's the sort of thing that it's, it seems like, yeah, people want the past to make them feel good about themselves, but that's not the job of history. And, and having these discussions about the past helps inform today and why you might get, like why people would give somebody side eye. It's because this, the, the, the systems and the systemic racism that exists in this country persist. And this is the history behind it. So yep. yeah, getting getting comfortable with it. Uh, but one of the things too, uh, Carrie, that I noticed this year at the Briar, Scott and I went to the Briar, that I don't know if it was every draw, but certainly I remember at, at least in a morning draw that I was at, they did a land acknowledgement, which yes. was new for me at a curling event. Um, obviously, you go to more national championships than I do. Is that, like how long has that happened? And uh, that's the that's the first time I've seen it. And it just okay. was, it made me so happy to see it because everyone should be doing that all yeah. across Canada. Yeah. yeah. Well, one and of the, one... I mean, people should go and learn about their land agreements and where they live, where all of you live, like go research mm -hmm. it. I, I always tell people they, and I think we tweeted that on uh, national indigenous people's days, go learn about mm -hmm. where you live because <laughs> yeah. everyone has history. So go learn about it. It is one of the calls to action in the Truth and Reconciliation Report. Uh, one of the calls to action is that everyone in the country should know whose yeah. traditional territory they live on. Uh, yes. that, that's so you know that that's probably the, it, it's probably the one that takes the least amount of time to implement. 
because you Google it and you read it up and there you like, that's the fastest <laughs> one that you personally can implement in the calls to action. Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah. But in terms um, of the acknowledgement, we see it up here all the time, but down south you don't, but I, I'm starting to see it more and more, which is, I think, great. Yeah, definitely increasingly common. Uh, I know that, uh, you know, I teach at Carleton and U Ottawa. It's not mandated in to put it in a syllabus, but a lot of faculty included in the syllabus of a course, too, in addition to in the first class. So it's starting to become uh, more commonplace, uh, which is, it's nice to see. It's, again, this is uh, an, an acknowledgement and awareness of, of what's happened in the past. Uh, so I'm curious to to talk uh, to you, Andrew and Carrie, about um, you know what what you feel would be the appropriate or the best next steps to make the the sport really feel inclusive, right? You know, outreach is great uh, to to try and get people in, but you know what what would it take? Do you think to make the sport feel really inclusive? And the example I like to to or the dream is that one day when Vic does one of his essays, his audio essays at the end of a Briar or Scotty's, that the pictures they use uh, are more reflective of the country that we actually live in on a day-to-day -day basis. Like, what do you think it would take to get to that point and it not stand out as being something different? Uh, Andrew, what do you think about that? Um, so assuming that you've done the marketing and people, you know, black people are starting to show up at curling clubs, make them feel welcome. So one of the things that I think hurts and helps the sport is the number of traditions that exist within curling and understanding that somebody from outside the sport may not know the traditions, may not understand the traditions. And quite frankly, some of the traditions we had in the sport are quite antiquated to be very honest about it. So, you know, working through those um, traditions and understanding that, you know, black people may not, number one, understand the tradition or may not look at it as super important. Mm -hmm. um, and number two, ask once you have people of color within your club, ask them questions, ask, you know, what, what it would take for them to feel comfortable within the club. Again, having conversations and then just letting, this is true for any country, let them do their thing. If <laughs> it's not the perfect slide, but they're having fun and maybe through some fluke of nature, they threw a rock and it stopped the paint. High five that. I don't care if you did two knee slides to get there and you almost fell on your face. That's a great shot. Now, over time, we'll refine that, but just have fun with it. And like, like you said there on your previous diversity podcast, you know, dance with them. You know, like, have them be part of your club. Perhaps there's different traditions that you can bring from other cultures into your club. And mm -hmm. Again, don't be afraid of saying the right thing and worrying that you're going to offend somebody. Because most people that I know who aren't white, they'll correct you and correct you. Number one, they'll do it quickly. Number two, usually it will happen in a very proper manner. I'm not going, if you said something inappropriate, I'm not going to 
tear off my shirt and leg into you, mm-hmm. we'll have a conversation of, you know, next time you should probably say this and, you know, black people find X offensive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that takes a level of humility that a lot of people currently either don't have or don't want to sort of outward project, right? It, it, I, I make mistakes every day, right? And certainly in my job as a historian, like we, we make mistakes. And, but it's important that we're open to hearing feedback and, and accepting other people's perspectives. Like that's just part of living in a society. But we're not, as a culture, we seem to be increasingly not good at doing that. Yeah. Just like everything in life, you will get out of it what you put into it. Mm-hmm. But you have to put something into it. And the big thing to understand when it comes to diversity, it's not our, it's not our job as black people or as indigenous people to fix this problem. That's usually when, when I was technical director and we talk about this, you know, all of a sudden all the eyes would turn towards me as to, well, how are you, how are you Andrew Paris going to fix this? Well, it's not my problem to, I can give you suggestions and we can start to have those hard conversations, but you're going to have to put some effort into this. And I promise you, whatever effort you put into it, it will reap results on the back end. Just number one, don't expect those results immediately. Just by talking to a black person doesn't mean you're suddenly going to have 25 walk into your club. Mm-hmm. And Number two, realize that it has to be meaningful conversations as well. It's not, hey, you black person, come into my club. Mm. It, it, it takes a little bit more effort, a little bit more in-depth conversations to see that change that we eventually want to see on the national stage. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and Carrie, you talked about the decrease in membership uh, up north of, of indigenous people and even just the, the unawareness of whether or not the national championship was still going on. Um, you know, what, what do you think it would take up north uh, and around the country to increase participation in a meaningful way? Yeah, I mean, like I said earlier, and I don't know if many people agree with me, but this is, these are my thoughts. I honestly think it's gonna it's got to start at the top. Like I said earlier, it's got to start with Curling Canada at the top where it all, like they're our main, they're our Canadian system, our um, go-to people. And it has to start with them. I mean, look at hockey. Hockey created that coalition. Um, mm-hmm. uh, what are they? What was, I can't remember what they're called. Um, the Hockey Diversity Alliance. And I thought that was great when I read about that. Um, That's where it starts. It starts, I mean, I know it's players and it's not the league itself, but um, that's a start. And I mean, they have good goals about racism and intolerance and hockey and um, community outreach and and they're making it so it hits all levels. And I think that's where it starts with us as Curling Canada and then it's gonna move down to our clubs. I mean, I'm not saying the clubs aren't responsible either. Every club has to, do their part, but every club is run so differently. I've curled in a lot of clubs across Canada. And I mean, every club is so different in terms of the boards, in terms of the people that are curling in the club. Um, you have, I mean, Yellowknife doesn't, we have one paid person, our ice maker is the only person paid. We're all volunteer based. It's so tough to get people. 
and their time. Whereas I've seen other clubs across Canada where they do have um, staff on payroll. So mm -hmm. there are a few, they have a few more people to help out, but it's just, um, I don't know. I just think it starts from the top and moves its way down. And as Andrew said, it's not going to be a year or two. This is, a, mm -hmm. this is down the road. Like we, it, it's, this is going to be, we're going to be talking about this for years to come. Mm -hmm. I wonder, uh, has Curling Canada, Sean, I don't know if you know, has, have they made a statement about diversity and should we call them to action? I think it's important. I right? think Catherine, I think I read an article that Devin wrote on CBC and I think it was back in June mm -hmm. and it might've been, they were talking about immigrants and how immigrants were going to be able to, um, bring more diversity into the sport of curling. Um, I don't know if anyone else read that article, but I'm pretty sure that's what it was about. Okay. So uh, the months are bleeding together for me. Go yeah. ahead, Andrew. I know that curling Canada, oh, so I tilt my camera. Um, <laughs> they've had, this is something that they've looked at. It's not something that they've necessarily been completely public with, but in curling Canada's defense, I know they've started to go down this road. And my biggest concern with all of this is that we have these conversations now, and then six months later, the conversations stop. And like, like I said before, like, this is something that's going to take multiple years. It's going to be something that's going to take multiple awkward conversations. So I hope that it's something that we just don't drop or maybe wait till the next incident in the States to bring mm -hmm. it back up again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. They, I know they did make a statement in june i i don't remember the the specific content of it um and i think there is again this is where it gets tricky for me right like how much of it is a genuine interest on curling canada's part and how much of it is like checking a box right like that commercial with the kids that they run of like i'm gonna be a doctor i'm gonna be a dentist i'm gonna do all this um and then the kid who says, I'm going to be a curling champion, right? That that commercial is intentionally diverse. The Rocks and Rings commercials are intentionally diverse. But again, it's hard to tell what tangible actions are taken by Curling Canada other than making one commercial with a diverse set of kids, right? I, a, com a commercial that runs during curling. So if you're not the kind of person that's already watching curling, yeah, then the odds that you see that commercial are... Uh, much lower right mm -hmm. yeah. so, so, one one thing i was wondering about is is money right because we know that money talks and it's great to say oh let's make uh, the sport more diverse but if we really want to uh, providing money to assist clubs on reaching out to uh, uh, different uh, cultural groups within the neighborhood you know sponsoring uh, a series of events for X cultural center or Y uh, social club to come into the curling, learn sort of in an environment that's comfortable to them where they're not being inundated by members left and right who all look different. Uh, it's, it's sort of a, I, the money is the thing. And I don't, I know talking about money when it comes to curling clubs in 2020 is a touchy issue 
because there's lots of grassroots problems anyway. Uh, but if we're serious about grassroots curling and helping it, I think this adding a diversity component to that is essential. So this is something that I personally feel curling Canada and the MAs could a hundred percent do to really get the ball rolling. Mm -hmm. I know in Nova Scotia, there's funds available via sport Nova Scotia and Nova Scotia curling because there are our PSO rep to for funding specifically for diversity. And I'd be really curious to see if there's similar models in other sporting organizations across Canada. So, you know, Sport New Brunswick, Sport PEI, and so on and so forth. But I know for a fact that there's funds available for this with Sport Nova Scotia. And shameless plug, if anybody wants to know about how to get access to this one, you can reach out to me on Facebook, Twitter, or I think enough people in the current community have my cell phone number by now that feel free to bring it up and we can chat, chat about that. That's great. Well, I, I was thinking too, you know, another thing that in terms of the finance of it, Scott, like clubs can invite people in without having them curl either, right? Like you can make the, the space of a curling club be open to the communities. Like I think of the Rideau Curling Club here in Ottawa, it's in Chinatown, but there's a big sign on it that says private club, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're not a curler, uh, but it's a huge space. There's the bar there. There's the kitchen that has the staff to, to do dinner. Like why not make it a place where people within the community who don't curl might want to feel comfortable coming and hanging out. And then maybe they'll try curling. And similarly, you know, clubs, every club has a bar at least. Um, you know, you, you can encourage groups to maybe have their meeting there or mm -hmm. come hang out there. And that's a way to get people into the space and make the space feel more inclusive. And then, okay, maybe I'll go try the sport too. Because I, I, I do think saying to somebody, come curl, that can be a leap for whatever reason, um, mm -hmm. whether they've seen the sport and don't like it, whether they've never seen the sport before, whether they're scared of falling down uh, on yeah. ice, right? That, that can be a leap. So just making that space more inclusive would be great and also could address some of the financial issues because you'd have more people coming in using the bar facilities if there's kitchens and clubs buying dinner. It, it, it strikes me as a win-win. Mm-hmm. Mm, that's the kicker because most curling clubs like it's for private members yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not welcoming right from the start right from the name and i mean i don't expect every club to go change it to curling center or whatever but i mean mm -hmm. that's where it starts it's not welcome they're not our clubs are not welcoming right and there's yeah there's no front facing of it sorry andrew no it's, it's all good um this isn't my idea so kudos to Rob Swan for this because he's talked to me many times about this about having the idea as a boys of curling club to either a change the name to blank blank curling center which we, like Carrie said not every club's going to go out and do that but at least think from that mindset of curling center rather than curling club you know like once upon a time you know the curling club used to be, you know, a core part of the community because it was more of a center than a club. It was, you know, a, a community hub. And like you said, 
maybe you don't get people out on the ice, but you know, just to have a meeting or invite them over for food or usually most curling clubs, you know, you're you're not finding alcohol any cheaper at any other bar in town. <laughs> so that alone could potentially if you want to not to advertise no free booze or cheap booze, but maybe you have a dance or a bingo and you sort of work, you know, mm-hmm. work around that. Just things off the top of my head. Yeah. And, and I think too of, of the way in which the LGBT community has been fully embraced in a lot of clubs across the country, obviously not all, but you know, a lot of major centers have rainbow leagues in some capacity. There is the national spiel uh, that we've done an episode on in the past and things like you can play. Those feel like meaningful engagements that there has been resistance to no question, but it, for whatever reason, it doesn't feel as awkward to people in clubs to have the, the rainbow leagues there. Um, and to, I don't, I don't know exactly why that is, but you know, similar programs for pushing out on other forms of diversity would be great um, if we could sort of copy that model again in a meaningful way, because it does feel like there's been more meaningful engagement with the LGBTQ community than with other minority communities. Yeah, mm-hmm. they did a really good job to raise awareness for that, and. It's interesting if you do compare the two, um, but I agree, Sean. Like that's a really good point. Yeah, and I mean, you look at like I know John Epping had the big story on Sportsnet uh, last month, but I mean, he's somebody who like he's he's open without being like I don't know I I don't know what I'm trying to say or, or how to say this best that he's open and it, but it doesn't feel like a big issue. Yeah. Like he, he is who he is. He, he's a great curler and okay, let's move on. Right. And, and it should be like that with everybody who comes into the club uh, mm-hmm. or competes in a competition. Um, come play, be yourself and we'll all get along. Yeah. <laughs> Simple, Sean, you solved it. I solved the world's problems. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but see, people have, moved on from that. And then that's the thing that I go back and talk about earlier. Like, I'm sure that was an awkward conversation for some, right? Mm-hmm. But moved on. There were a couple mm-hmm. of interviews with all of them. Kudos to Epin for pushing that conversation along. But now, I mean, maybe it still exists in small pockets, but for the most part, I don't see any awkwardness or any sort of pushback around it. And that's something that Again, it did not happen overnight. It didn't happen no. with one interview. There was a lot of work that happened behind the scenes for things to get to that point. And that's sort of the LGBTQ community. That's something that gives me hope that it can happen with Black people as well eventually, or that it can happen mm-hmm. with Indigenous people. It's not an impossibility. It's something that yeah. can happen. We just need to continue these conversations and have everybody from Curling Canada to your provincial association, to your club, help push that ball down the road. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, just sort of wrapping up here, if anyone in the comments who's watching wants to ask a question of our guest, uh, please do submit uh, your comments. Scott's monitoring this. I've seen a couple things here. Uh, Christian, uh, thank you for your comments. It's uh, I'm, I'm glad that, 
you know, we, she, she said that she hasn't had similar experiences uh, directly um, as, as you, Andrew, with uh, when you talked about um, the, the negative experience of someone using the N-word towards you. But she does add that uh, I'm sure things have been said behind my back, right? And that sort of gets at some of the issue, too, of how welcoming, how inclusive are we uh, within the sport um, mm -hmm. to, to, you know, that that, that sort of thing probably does, uh, does happen. So... Uh, just for for sort of as a wrap up to the the discussion today, obviously not a wrap up to the discussion overall, uh, but today let's start with uh, with Carrie in the north, and then we'll go to Andrew out east. Um, what do you hope comes of this, uh, just in general? Like you know, over the past few months, we've had this broad societal engagement on a lot of these issues. We, of course, as people who are very interested and invested in curling, want to to see how we can improve the sport, make it more inclusive. But what do you think people can do on this micro level locally to, to better engage with these issues and to push this discussion and these issues forward within the sport? Yeah, I mean, there, we've seen a huge, with the Black Lives Movement down in the US, it's just been huge. There's people are talking more, um, there's more awareness um, within Canada, I still think. <laughs> We, with the Indigenous peoples, people are so unaware that I didn't even know about. I mean, people need to start talking. And um, I know my friend, uh, Crystal Fraser, she uh, did 150 acts of reconciliation for when Canada was turning 150. And and it was just 150 points of things can do to raise awareness for reconciliation. And you know what? I think one of the points was learn about the Black Lives Matter movement. And that was back in 2017, I think. So, I mean, it's been around, but for for this, just recently, it's it's become, people are more aware of it and talking about it and being uncomfortable. And I think that's great. We still have a lot to go. And um, as I mentioned, starts at the top, moves its way down. And locally in the North, um, I mean, we have our, we have so many issues up here. I mean, Every day on Facebook, I see people complaining about the homeless population on the street. There's people, Indigenous people, they're drunk and they're, you know, and it's people complaining about it. And it's like, you know what? We have a failed system. We've mm -hmm. failed our with residential schools. It's, it just, it starts with the history. And if people aren't aware of it, nothing's going to change. And um, people need to learn and educate themselves. And when people have more compassion and understanding, um, I think then maybe we can start seeing some changes. But um, in terms of diversity and curling in the clubs, it's clubs. Um, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's, I mean, we have so far to go. And I think even just us sitting here discussing it, it's it's a start and we still have a long way to go. Um, I don't have all the answers. I know nobody does. It's gonna be a big collaboration from the top down and I'm hoping, I'm hoping that we start seeing changes soon. Uh, so anyone who's watching, Scott posted the link to that article uh, that uh, Carrie referenced, the 150 uh, Acts of Reconciliation in the comments are one of the versions, like they, I know it was published in multiple places. He posted the Active History version. Full disclosure, I am a contributing editor at Active History. And I will say that that article, it blew out of the water anything else that was posted in 2017. Mm -hmm. And it still remains the most 
hits that we've ever gotten in an article, which sort of oh, wow. gives me gives me some hope um, <laughs> that, yes. that people are, are finding it. So yeah, it it the day that that went out, like it blew up, like the site just went crazy and uh, it, it continues to get tons of hits. Uh, so Scott, nice. uh, so Scott has posted that. Uh, Andrew, uh, what do you what do you think? Um, there's a couple of things I'd like to see. First off, just like Carrie said, it's there is an element of this that starts at the top. I'd like to see current candidate in every single member association, even just make a statement adding to your provincial party rules that racism and discrimination will not be tolerated, period. And I want you to I would like for them to explicitly add in that racism component to it. That's just one step, small step, small step that can be done, but at least that sort of gets the ball rolling. Um, and then at the club level, I'd like to see people just in general get less defensive about the, having this conversation. A lot of things that we saw with Devin Haru's article there a month ago, everything feels like it was six years ago now with COVID, <laughs> but a month ago was that everyone stand up and said, well, I'm not racist. I'm not racist. And the thing I'd like to for people to take away is, is I don't think you are racist. However, you're naive to think that there's not a conversation that needs to be had about making the clubs more diverse and have those conversations. But more than anything, just listen. Stop screaming, I'm not racist. Just listen for a moment. Mm-hmm. And perhaps you might be, you might have your eyes open to something else. And to every single board across the country, no matter how diverse your club is or isn't, because there are some clubs, especially in BC, where there is quite a bit of diversity, but have a conversation in the board meeting. Like, just start. It doesn't have to be an entire board, two-hour board meeting onto itself, but even a 15-minute conversation about it is... A start and then see where that goes from there. If we can accomplish those small things to at least have that snowball moving downhill, then I believe you know it's possible within the next 10 years when Vic does his essay at the end that that picture that you see of all the teams in the skies and all the teams at the briars that it's little bits and pieces of you know. No, there's there's some black people in there. There's more indigenous people in there. That it has to start somewhere, and it starts with those little conversations. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so just in the comments, Jonathan Penny uh, there, says they're building a new club in Cincinnati, and as part of that, they've reached out to the local school district and their uh, outreach for diversity and inclusion department. That's great, uh, great initiative there, especially if it's a new club. Um, you know, you're not starting with this group of people who are in the club already who are already like this is our club yeah. um right and then uh, megan edwards asked uh, would curling canada promoting its diverse players help encourage minority players uh, and i i would suggest that yeah that probably would help um you know i i know for me that when i watch curling um as a kid you know, and you talked about having uh yes as a kid like playing on the floor i did the same thing i had this oversized checker set uh, and I would use the red and the black checker pieces on the floor in the kitchen. Um, and it, it's just from watching it and, and being able to connect to the people on the TV. So I, I think, yeah, if, if we can get to a point where kids are flipping around, land on the curling, and they're seeing themselves uh, mm. on screen, 
I, I that has to help. Yeah, I saw <clears throat> I saw on uh, Twitter today a little girl who was watching Hamilton and said she looks like me. She looks like me, mom. Like that's such a small thing, but it's super important, right? So yeah, yeah. here's okay. hoping. There's the same thing. Um, I, oh, I can't remember her name, but an actress won the Tony for best featured player uh, and she's in a wheelchair and she won and gave mm -hmm. a, a really great speech about how this is for every kid who was told you can't do it. And like, yeah, you can. Um, and I saw Oklahoma when she was in it and she's not like the character. Like, you don't even notice that she's in a chair. Like that she's in a wheelchair. She's just, she's acting her ass off and killing all these high notes. And you're like, yeah, go for it. Right? And that's the sort of stuff that it, yeah, it definitely helps just that representation on screen, on stage, wherever it is. And, and the more we can do to help promote that and make it, I don't know, comfortable, not comfortable, make it normal, normal. make it common, mm -hmm. normal. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the better we'll be. Yeah. Wow, Sean. Definitely. Way to sum things up. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so, so thank you everybody for watching and uh, your comments. Uh, really in enjoyed engaging there. And uh, of course, uh, many thanks to our guests, Andrew Paris and Carrie Galusha. Thank you so much for joining us today. No thanks for, thanks having me. for having me. And there you have it. Our discussion with Andrew Paris, Carrie Galusha. Again, we thank them for their time and for joining us earlier this week the full version of it i mean that was the full version of it but the if you want to watch the session watch the conversation it is available on our facebook page and it'll be there that's where the video will live so you can check it out over there if you're interested uh, as well as the previous discussion that we had with aria moore and portia stevenson and jason chang that one is also over on the Facebook page if you want to watch the video of it. The audio is back in the feed. So, Scott, I thought that was a, a great discussion, uh, very good insights from our guests, and just a conversation that we're going to continue having as we move forward. Yeah, that that we need to continue continue having. I know uh, you mentioned there that uh, if, if we ever stop talking about stuff like this and if we haven't talked about it for a while, please let us know. Yeah, so definitely can... call us out. Yeah, call us out if we stop talking about these issues. Yeah, because it's important. And as we head into the most uncertain curling season that we've ever known, it's probably easy to get lost. But uh, we want to make sure that we don't forget. Absolutely. No, no question about that. So, again, we thank Andrew and Carrie for joining us. Scott, thank you as well. And thanks for everybody who joined us live on Sunday and who listened today. Uh, we definitely appreciate it. And that'll do it for this week's episode. If you have not yet, please do subscribe to the show wherever it is you get your podcast. Give us the likes, the ratings, all that stuff. Helps other people find the show. Keeps the show going. You can also follow along on Instagram and Twitter at Game of Stones Pod. And please do head over to GameofStonesPod.com. You can find all the episodes there. But also, the merch link. We have the Game of Stones t-shirts that are available. All proceeds from the shirts are going to Food Banks Canada. And Scott, I got a notice today, because we're doing this with uh, a company. What are they called? Coastal? 
Coastal Rain. Coastal Rain uh, yeah. out there in uh, British Columbia. And I got notice from them today that my order has shipped. So it's on some form of transportation heading east. And I received a shipment from them today. So uh, we will discuss after the call. But uh, yeah, uh, really excited to have it be a Canadian company. We uh, the, the link for the merchandise, in addition to being on our website, Game of Stones Pod, uh, click the merch link. Uh, the link is also available in the bio of our Instagram. So yes. if you if you follow us on Instagram, just go there and click the link in the bio. Uh, that's the easiest way to get a link working on Instagram. Uh, yes, it and is. It will also we've also tweeted about it, but we'll tweet again. Yeah, uh, it'll be the soon. pinned it'll be the pinned tweet on our Twitter account. Okay, it is good. Yeah, I was just gonna check. Well, it's not right now, but it will be before this goes out <laughs> onto the internet. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, so if you're interested, please do check it out. As we said, everything uh, in terms of the proceeds going to Food Banks Canada. Uh, if you don't want a shirt and you just want to donate to Food Banks Canada or your local food bank, we fully support that as well. So that'll do it for this week. Thank you everybody for listening. We'll be back with you again next week, but until then keep those brooms on the ice. Don't dump that intern. Make the final.